0: So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. The last number of uh, Sundays, we've been studying what, what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are these blessed R statements in Matthew 3 to 10. And, and this is the introduction to Jesus' sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus delivered to his disciples, and it's a a message for the followers of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple means to be a learner. Uh, It means to be one who follows. And so the the Sermon on the Mount is for those who want to follow Jesus Christ and learn from him. It's for those who have given up their life to follow after Jesus. And, And this sermon begins with eight pronouncements of blessing, eight pronouncements of blessing, and the blessings are pronounced upon these eight states that describe true disciples of Jesus Christ. A true disciple of Jesus Christ, as we've been learning, is somebody who has been transformed, and they're no longer what they once were. There's been a a supernatural change of of their character and internal nature. And so let's begin, and we're just going to read the Beatitude, starting at verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy." Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be blessed in these verses means to be in an enviable position. The the best English word might be congratulations. The, 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 congratulations are in order if you are in these states because you are in a position that others should want to be in. The people in these states, uh poor in spirit, the mourn, meek, etc., that are are blessed because amazing things await them in the future. Because they are what they are now, these awesome benefits will be theirs in the future. Right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They belong to this kingdom, and this kingdom belongs to them. In other words, all the promises about the millennial kingdom and the future eternal state belong to these people. They will be in that kingdom when it's established. These people mourn now, but then on that future day, they will be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. Right now, these people might have to give up certain earthly blessings. But on a future day, the whole earth will be theirs. And they will be satisfied with righteousness. They will receive mercy. And they will see God according to verse 8. Just think about that. These blessed people will one day dwell with God and they will see him. They will have a, a sight of him, and he will reveal his glory and his greatness and his goodness to them. But the greatest blessing of all of these blessings, and, and really the gr- greatest blessing that belongs to our salvation is what we see in verse nine, where it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, this statement by our Lord would have knocked the sandals off of his hearers. This is absolutely astonishing. Now, maybe we're kind of used to it and we've heard about this before, but this is absolutely astonishing. They will be called sons of God. Now, sometimes Israel, very rarely, but sometimes Israel as a nation was called a son. And when God brought them out of Egypt he bore them on eagles wings and he says in Hosea 11 verse 1 when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son but even with those very few verses in the Old Testament where God speaks of Israel as his son there was nothing in the Old Testament about individuals being sons of God and so Jesus is here introducing something new for his disciples this blessing involves a relational, a, a relational intimacy with God. Again, nothing would have been more surprising to the hearers of this sermon than that Jesus' disciples would be called sons of God. The Jews, they didn't call God their Father. None of the Old Testament prophets ever called God Father. And yet, starting here and throughout this sermon, Jesus teaches his disciples to think of God as their Father. And just as we look through, as we begin here, looking just through some of these verses where Jesus teaches his disciples to call God Father, verse 9 again, for they shall be called sons of God. In chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 48, Therefore, you you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6 and verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In verse 4, near the end, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 9, Pray like this then, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so throughout this sermon, Jesus is teaching his people to think about God as their Father as, and all that they do is really to be done in order to please their Father and not worry about what other people think. It's all to be done for the Father. Even chapter 7 and verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so Jesus teaches his disciples to think of themselves as children of God, their Father. And theologically, we call this the doctrine of adoption. This is part of soteriology, part of the study of salvation. And this is really the high point in the study of salvation, because here we see the unmerited grace of God. Because God not only saves a wretch like me, he makes me one of his children. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a child of God through adoption. God has brought you into his family. And what we're going to do today is we're just going to examine really from verse 9, they shall be called sons of God. And we just want to examine this doctrine of adoption. We're going to kind of go on an exploratory journey of the doctrine. We're going to start in ancient Rome where this idea of adoption really comes from in the New Testament. And then we're going to go all the way to eternity future and see what awaits God's sons in the eternal state. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're we're taking a theological tour and we're going to take three stops on this tour, three stops on the, the theological tour of adoption. And we're going to look first at the explanation of adoption. I'm just going to explain what is adoption and how does this doctrine work and show you where we find it a little bit in Scripture. And then we're going to do an exploration of adoption. And I'm going to show you, I've come up with nine benefits that come to us through adoption. Because we are adopted as God's sons and daughters, there's at least nine things that are amazing that, that happen to us and that God does for us because we are His children And then we're going to look at the expectations from adoption and just look at what we can expect in the eternal state because we are the children of God. And so our first stop then this morning on this tour is in the ancient Near East around the time of Jesus. Rome was the ruling power in Palestine and Israel. And it's from the, the Roman laws concerning adoption that, that Paul kind of makes this connection between us being sons and the, the, the New Testament teaching. It, it really comes from Roman law. The apostles, what they did is, it seems, is they took the teaching of the Lord and maybe in this Sermon on the Mount and other places in Jesus' teaching, and then they, they joined it with the way that adoption worked according to Roman law. And we're going to call this again the explanation of adoption. And it, again, it it really all begins with Jesus' teaching here, but it wasn't called adoption until Paul used that word in Galatians and Ephesians and Romans. And again, adoption really comes, like I said, from Roman law. According to Roman law, the father of a family had absolute rights and absolute authority over his children. Listen, the father had so much authority that he could even put one of his children to death for any reason. And there would be no repercussions from the government. That was the father's sphere of authority, according to Roman law. And this absolute authority of the father made adoption a very difficult thing because it was difficult to, if not almost impossible, to free a child from his father's authority and then put him under the authority of another child. Now... As we think about this, um, doctrine of adoption, we got a little bit of work to do because I think we in, in North America, Canada, we think about adoption very differently than the, the ancient Near Eastern Roman law kind of mindset. In our day, and you can just think about this for yourself and see if this isn't maybe ring true with you, but in our day, we think of adoption as maybe like a second class kind of a thing. It probably shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it is, and I've even talked to people who said, you know, uh, I'm adopted, kind of like it's not such a great thing. I'm adopted, um, you know, and they say it like they're almost like they're not full members of the family. Right? Like, they're, they're kind of like the second class citizens of the family. They were adopted. The other, the other kids, they're the, they're the natural kids. They're the blessed kids. And in our day, sometimes people adopt orphans or, or needy people. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But somehow, sometimes it seems like, um, because of that, it's viewed like a second class thing. But it wasn't like that in the Roman world. You know, the the Romans, they didn't adopt orphans. They didn't adopt people who were needy or who, yeah, who were in need. They might have bought orphans. They might have um, took them in as slaves. Remember, slavery was, was a very common and normal and, and socially accepted thing in that day. And so if, if there was a needy person, they might have brought them in to serve them as slaves and servants. And it might have been a wonderful relationship. But adoption was even higher and even a more special thing because people adopted when they wanted an heir. And the the people who would tend to adopt would be like the kings and the rulers and and the very wealthy people who had an estate to pass on and had uh, a family name to keep. And so it was the Caesars who would adopt people into their family in order to continue the family line. And people adopted, not because they saw somebody in need that needed a family, but they adopted because they saw somebody who is special in some kind of way, that, that stood out in some kind of a way, and they wanted that person to be in their family. Now when people have children, right, when you and I have children, we kind of get what we get, don't we? Right? We kind of, we get what we get. All of our children are different and all of them have different attributes and different skills. When when I heard a sermon this week by MacArthur and he said, you know, I might have, I might have wanted that one to have a little bit more brain power and that one a little bit better coordination. And I didn't dare to say anything like that about, about my children here. But, but when, when people have children, they, they really get what they get. They don't, they don't choose the children that come into their family based on their attributes. They, they are what they are. But when you adopted in the Roman world, you could choose anybody that you wanted to adopt into your family. And so when you adopted, you chose someone based on who they were, based on their attributes, based on the good things about them. And so in the Roman thinking of Paul day, of Paul's day, to be adopted, what meant to be especially chosen by your parents because of some greatness in you. In fact, if, if those parents had other children naturally after the adoption, those children could not legally take the inheritance of the adopted child. That, that adopted child was now so much a part of the family that they were considered equal, if not better than the other children in the family. And so adoption was actually viewed as a more noble way to be part of a family. In the Roman world, you might say, you know, I was just naturally born, but my brother, my my older brother, he was adopted. And And everyone would go, wow, that's amazing. That older brother was adopted. And so adoption was a, a wonderful thing in the ancient Near East. And adoption involved a two-step legal process. In the first step, the adoptee was removed from the control of his birth father. And this was actually, this, this first step was done by three steps. And there was, there was three times where the child was, was sold by, to the adopt, to the adopter. The adoptee was sold to the adopter over three times, and so he would be sold, and then he would come back under the control of his father automatically again. He would be sold a second time, and then when he was sold to the adopter the third time, he was now officially freed from the control of his birth father. And then in step two of the process, the the adoptee was now put under the control of the new father, and now the adoptee was officially a member of the new family, and his new father had absolute control over him, just like his former father had. Now, in this process, uh, as as this transaction was happening, the adoptee lost all the rights and privileges of his former family, and he now gained all the rights and privileges of his new family. And so including any debts that he might have had or any record, actually all records of his former life were obliterated and and his former existence was now forgotten. And he only and solely belonged to this new family. And he was now heir of his new father's estate. And he was now the carrier of his new father's name. And this status as son was then considered permanent unless this new father would, would go through the same whole process. Now, to ensure that, that this thing never was undone, this, this adoption, this legal exchange between the fathers had to be witnessed by seven credible witnesses. And so there were seven living people who would be able to attest to the, the the fact of this adoption in case there was ever a challenge to the adoption. Maybe in case some natural born children came and they said, no, this adoption wasn't valid. There would be seven witnesses who would say, yes, this father did in fact adopt this person. And this is the background that Paul was drawing on When he said that we were adopted as sons. We were formerly sons of our father, the devil. And we were under the devil's control. And our inheritance was going to be that of our father, the devil, the fire, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now turn with me then to Colossians chapter (coughs) one. Colossians chapter 1 in verse 12 In Colossians 1:12 it says Paul's giving giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light And so the Father, God the Father qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. And then in verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so we have been transferred to another kingdom by this adoption. We are no longer, as believers in Christ, we are no longer under the dominion of the devil. We are under the dominion of a new father. And we have a new family name that we carry. And we have a new inheritance that belongs to us because we are a part of this new family. And this transfer... From one kingdom to another, from one family to another family, that is part of our salvation. And to see that, I want you to turn just back a couple books to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to come here a couple times today, but Ephesians... One, three, all the way to verse fourteen is one really long sentence in the original language. The English translation has, has put periods in, in different places to kind of break it up a little bit. But this is really all one sentence. And the context of this whole section is Trinitarian salvation. Either the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all mentioned in this context and And being praised for the blessings that they give us as each of them works to accomplish our one salvation. And so we see here adoption in this section, but it's all in this context of our salvation. And so Paul in verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And, and the idea here is that we are blessed with these spiritual blessings. And then starting in verse 4, Paul starts to enumerate some of these blessings that, that have come to us through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he starts with the Father, and in verse 4 he says, even as or just as He chose us in Him, in Christ... Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then it says he in verse five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will or according to the good pleasure of his will. And so in verse four, God chose us. And notice when he chose us, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Before we existed in the world, we existed in God's mind. And the purpose of God's choice was that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. God chose us in order that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. God didn't choose us because we would be holy. He didn't choose us because we would be blameless, because he foresaw that we would be blameless. He chose us in order to make us blameless, in order that we would be blameless before him and holy. And then verse five brings adoption into this. God, it says there, predestined us. He, God the Father, predestined. And that means, that word there means to decide something before, to, to make a decision on something beforehand. And what did he decide? Well, he decided to adopt us. And when did he decide it? Well, before what? I would say probably the same as in verse four, before the foundation of the world, when really when God decided on all of his works, on all of what he would do in time before the foundation of the world. Now, to be really precise here, he decided When it says, it says, uh, sorry, (laughs) to to be really precise here, God didn't merely decide beforehand to adopt us, but he decided beforehand. And and what did he decide? He really decided on us. He predestined us. And the purpose of his, his choosing us or his deciding upon us was that we would be adopted to himself. And so the purpose of God's deciding on us was for us to be adopted into his family. Now, I think the best way to kind of connect these two words when he chose us and he predestined us, I think the best way to understand this is that he chose us before the foundation of the world because he predestined us to this adoption. Now, it says there that he predestined us for Adoption. And the idea there is that he predestined us unto this adoption. He predestined us to this adoption to himself. And all of this is done in or through Jesus Christ. Already three times Paul has said that this is in him, or verse five, that this was through Jesus Christ. In in other words, this adoption is part of our salvation. In verse 7, it says, in him, that is in Jesus Christ again, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And so when God chose us, it was in connection with what Christ would do. And so he chose us for forgiveness. He chose us that we would be blameless and holy before Him. He chose us that we would be adopted into His family. And this is just really so amazing here because in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. And the idea is is that God adopts us and He brings us to Himself. He, he brings us to Himself And the uh, the amazing thing about this is that God did not need to do this. God didn't even need to do this in order to save us. Now, God didn't need to save us at all. He would have been entirely just to have passed by the entire human race and left us condemned to hell. But when he decided even that he would save us, he didn't need to make us his children. He didn't need to adopt us into his family in order to save us. He could have forgiven our sin and made us blameless before him by granting us Christ's righteousness without making us his children. He could have predestined us and brought us to himself as slaves to serve him forever in his eternal kingdom. He could have predestined us and brought us to himself as servants to serve him in the eternal state. And to do so would have been infinitely more than we deserved. Because in order to have a relationship with God, all we really needed was a perfect righteousness. We didn't need to be His sons and His daughters. But God shows His immeasurable kindness to us through Jesus Christ by not only saving us from His wrath, but also by making us His children. And so that's the... The exp- or the explanation of adoption, we begin to see these ideas. Now, the next stop on our journey is the exploration of adoption. The exploration of adoption. And what I want to do here is just show you some of the benefits of adoption. The Word of God reveals so many good things that belong to us as the children of God. And the first of these is the Holy Spirit. There's actually going to be nine of these. So if you're taking notes, you want to write, want to write small or write them on another page. But the first of, of these blessings, the, of good things that come to us as we explore the doctrine of adoption is the Holy Spirit. And to see that, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter four. Galatians, chapter 4, the first blessing, the first good thing is the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then in verse 6, he says, and because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so God the Father, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us. He sent Him to buy us for Himself. To redeem means to buy something. And so Christ purchased us with His blood And the purpose of His redemption in verse 5 is so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so God sent His beloved Son in order to make us sons. He sent His righteous and holy Son to make unrighteous and unholy people righteous and to make us holy members of His family. And to do this, God sent His Spirit to regenerate us. And then it says in verse 6, Because you are sons... He sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so because we are sons, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The sons of God have the Spirit of the Son. We have the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can stay right here then to see the next benefit. And the next benefit here is the intimacy with God, and so first we see the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit now. Second, intimacy with God, and and notice there how the Spirit comes, and He's crying, "Abba, Father, Abba, Father." Abba is what little uh, Arabic children. Ara, this is an, an Aramaic term, this is what, what in Aramaic was, is something kind of like our daddy. It's, it's a term of affection that little children would have called their father. And so Abba is what we cry because the Holy Spirit is living in us. Now this term Abba is only found three times in scripture here in Galatians 4 6, also in uh, Romans chapter 8, and verse 14 and why don't we why don't we just go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8 <clears throat> really it's in Romans 8:15 we're going to just start reading at verse 14 paul there says for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so if you have the Spirit, it is because you are sons. We saw that in Galatians chapter 4. And if you have the Spirit, you are led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is leading you in life. And the Spirit in us makes us recognize and, and come to the realization that we are indeed sons of God. The Spirit makes us recognize that we are sons of God, and the the Spirit also moves us then to cry, Abba, Father. It's by that Spirit at the end of verse 15 that we cry, Abba, Father. But there's one more place in Scripture where we see this term, Abba, and that's in Mark chapter 14. And I, I want you to turn then with me to Mark chapter 14. I'll start reading in verse 33 and you'll recognize this is in the the garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus is going to be crucified for our sins. And in verse 33, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. He wants them to to watch and and pray with him. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so here we see the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ with this intimacy of relationship between him and the Father, and he cries, Abba, Father. And so Jesus is the one who ultimately cries, Abba, Father. He's the one who is on that level of intimacy with God the Father that he can use those words. And now we are now brought into this relationship, this intimacy with God that even the Son of God has. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, in their book, Biblical Doctrine, say this about about these words. They say, So intimate is our bond with God, with the God of the universe, that the Spirit compels us to cry out to Him with childlike affection, Abba, Father. Abba signifies the most endearing tenderness and intimacy between a father and a son. And then they say, it is nothing short of staggering to think that we who were once alienated from God because of our sin have been given the privilege of crying out to the Father in the very same way that his beloved Son did. The glory of that thought is exceeded only by the reality that his cry of Abba was ignored so that ours would be heard." End quote. And so we have amazing intimacy and closeness with God because we are His sons. The third good thing or benefit that we see then in adoption, and and I hope you've already been seeing this already, is that the, the whole Trinity is working together in our adoption. We've seen the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working. The Father has chosen and predestined us, and He sent the Son. And the Son was sent and he redeemed us and he died and he rose again on our behalf and now the spirit comes and regenerates us and then he indwells us and he makes us cry to God with this intimacy of Abba and so all three persons of the trinity are working together in our salvation and the father is the one who adopts us and the Son is the one who pays the redemption price to make this adoption possible. And then the Spirit is the one who comes into our hearts and makes us feel this reality and makes us recognize the reality of this adoption in our hearts. And so the work of the Trinity is involved in this adoption. The fourth benefit of adoption then is the, that we are now the family of God. We are the family of God, uh, Hebrews chapter two and verse ten says, "For it was fitting that He, speaking here about the Son, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the Founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source." Or more literally there they they are all one the one who sanctifies and the ones who are being sanctified that is the lord jesus christ and us we are all one and th- and then uh, continuing the reading that is why he that is why jesus christ is not ashamed to call them brothers saying and then the author of hebrews quotes from psalm 22 and this is the psalm 22 the words of jesus christ i will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And the idea here is that Jesus is speaking to the Lord and he's saying, I'm going to tell my brothers about your great and awesome name and I'm going to sing. But Jesus there calls us his brothers. A little bit later, chapter two and verse fourteen says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, Jesus partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And then in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so Jesus is the Son of God and He took on human nature to become our Savior. And then through that salvation, we become children of God and Jesus Christ is now our brother. And we have become then brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We belong, as it says in Ephesians, to the household of God and so we are part of the family of God, and every other true believer in the world is part of the same family with us. For the next benefit, I want you to turn then with me to Matthew chapter 6. And what we see then, is, fifthly, is that because we are sons and daughters of God, we have the promise of answer to our prayers. And so fifth is answer to prayer. And we can see this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 where Jesus first teaches us to pray our Father in heaven. We pray to God as our Father and we ask that His name would be hallowed. We pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray like that, according to Matthew 7 and verse 7, we should expect God to answer our prayers how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, verses 7 and 8 there teach us to ask and seek and knock, expecting God to answer our prayers. But verses 9 to 11 then drive this home with an illustration. If you, being evil, give your children good things, then the argument is, how much more will God who is good give good things to his children. And so as children of God, we should go to God in prayer expecting that when we go and we ask for a fish, he will give us a fish. And when we go to him and we ask for uh, something good, he will give us those good things because we are his children. And so we should expect answer to prayer. Sixth, because we are the sons of God, we have an amazing Inheritance, we have an amazing inheritance, and you could turn back to Galatians chapter four uh, for this one in in Roman culture, one of the primary reasons again for adoption was to continue the family name and then to pass your inheritance along to an heir and so if you were unable to have an heir or you didn't have an heir, you would adopt somebody to pass along the family name and to provide an heir to take over your reign, to take over your your kingdom, to take over your estate and all of your goods. And when God adopts us into his family, we become heirs of God and we become co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And that's why Matthew 5, 5 says that, that we shall inherit the earth. Or Galatians 4 and verse 6, if you're there, because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts crying, Abba, father. Verse seven, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Or actually go back to Romans chapter eight and look at verse 15 again. Romans eight and verse 15. And so if you are children of God, then you are heirs of God. You are fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is the firstborn son, and we will share the inheritance with him. Now, how good is that? If you think about an inheritance, if you think about any inheritance that you could have in the world, how about being an heir of God, an heir of Jesus Christ who owns all things and who created all things? There, there really is no better inheritance in the universe. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew say in biblical doctrine, quote, everything that Christ will receive by divine right as the natural Son of God, we will receive by divine grace as adoptive children of god End quote. revelation twenty one and verse seven says, likewise, he who overcomes will inherit all all these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son now, first Peter. 1 also kind of ties this in. Let's go there as we think about this inheritance that we have. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 1, we'll start reading at verse 3, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter here ties our inheritance to the new birth. We are born again to a living hope. We are born again to an inheritance. And so not only are we adopted into God's family, but we are adopted into God's family through the new birth so that God now gives us a new nature as his children. And so unlike the adoption in Rome where you would choose somebody great, right? You would choose a a great heir with some special qualities, maybe some some wisdom or some intelligence that maybe was beyond your natural children. Well, in, in our case, we were wicked and wretched and sinful. But when God chooses us and adopts us into his family, he also makes us born again. And he now grants us this new nature so that we become the kind of desirable children that God would like in his family. And so we are born again then into this family, born again and adopted into this family and because of this Peter says we have an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and notice what it says there that we are are kept by the power of God this really brings us into the next aspect here the the seventh one and I'm, I'm going to call the seventh one the guarantee this is the seventh benefit of our adoption notice In verse five, that who are or who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Notice it's in verse five, who by God's power. Now, who refers to those who have been born again or those who God has caused to be born again. They are being guarded or some translations say they are protected. And that word there means to watch or to guard or protect or to keep. And it's a word that was used in in, in guarding prisoners. And the idea was is that you would you would set guard to watch the prisoners to keep them from escaping. And so the idea here is that the inheritance that we have, it won't perish, it won't fade, it won't become defiled. And not only that, but God is also making sure that the people won't miss that inheritance either. And so not only will the inheritance last forever, but God is making sure that these people will will have this inheritance, that they won't miss it. God is guarding these people for their inheritance. And so this is the guarantee. Now don't miss this in verse 5. Not only is God guarding these people, but Peter says they're guarded by God's power. He, he wants these believers to be encouraged that God's almighty power is keeping them. The omnipotent, the all-powerful, the never-sleeping God is on duty guarding these people. And do I need to say that nothing is going to overpower God's all-powerful guarding protection? And so God is guarding us. He's, he's guarding us, get this even from ourselves. Or, or maybe we should even say God is especially guarding us from ourselves. And I'm so glad that God is guarding me from me and from all other threats to my soul or threats to my inheritance. Now I, I understand that some people in town are, are fearful of this doctrine, what they call eternal security. But I, I think it's because they don't really understand how this thing works. You see, God doesn't guard us apart from faith. He guards us, as it says in the text there, He guards us through faith. And so God is guarding us and, and watching over our faith to ensure that we make it to our eternal inheritance. And I, I called this one the guarantee because of some words in Ephesians chapter 1. And so let's go back then to Ephesians chapter 1 because our inheritance as sons and daughters of God is guaranteed. It's protected by something greater than seven witnesses. It's protected by God Himself. So in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, now Paul, we're still in this long sentence here in Ephesians, and Paul is now... Explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 13, "...in Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Now there's two words here that guarantee our inheritance And both of these are tied to adoption. The Spirit, remember, indwells us because we were adopted. And we have an inheritance because we were adopted. And here, Paul tells the believers that they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this seal here is a mark of identification. The Spirit makes us or, or marks us off as belonging to God. Now, whatever was marked or or sealed in this way was marked for its protection, like a, a brand would be on a cow, and that brand shows who that cow belongs to, and it shows who cares for that cow. And then in verse 14, so not only were we sealed and, and marked off with the promised Holy Spirit, but then in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is also the guarantee of our inheritance. The word guarantee was was like a down payment that promised that the rest would be paid. And so when there was a guarantee like this, somebody would would make a payment, and that payment guaranteed that the rest of the payment would come later on. And the idea here is that God has bought us. He has purchased us, and we are His inheritance. And God now gave the Holy Spirit to guarantee that the rest of our redemption would be accomplished. Now, God does not go back on his promises, and he's gonna get what he paid for, and, and he is gonna, in this context, he is gonna be the one who inherits us, and if God inherits us, we will also receive our inheritance. Now, this word guarantee is also used in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 30 where it says do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption or in second corinthians 1 and 22 it says and he has also put his seal on us and given us the holy spirits in our hearts as a guarantee or again in second corinthians 5 and verse 5 he who has prepared us for this very thing is god who has given the spirit as a guarantee the Holy Spirit is in our life as a guarantee that God is going to finish what he started in our redemption and so seventh then was the guarantee the eighth thing that we have the eighth good thing the eighth benefit of our adoption is assurance of our salvation and really as we take all of this together it should lead us to the assurance of our salvation Again, Romans 8 and 16, the Spirit Himself, that is the Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives bears witness that we are children of God. And the Spirit is also the guarantee of our inheritance. And these two things should come together to give us assurance of our salvation, Now, God does not choose and predestine to adopt children to himself before the foundation of the world, only to somehow unadopt them when they fail. Instead, he sends his spirit and he empowers us and he teaches us and he works in us to conform us to the image of his son and to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so really what, what is happening here is that, that it is God who is working in our salvation. He is the one who saves, he is the one who adopts, and he is the one who sanctifies and makes us like Christ and makes us endure until the end, until we receive our final salvation. And when we go astray, one final blessing of adoption, the ninth blessing of adoption is that when we go astray, the father disciplines his children. And we get this from Hebrews chapter 12. And you could turn to Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse five. There it says to the Hebrews, to the Hebrew believers, and you have forgotten the exhort and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons to those who have been trained by it. The Lord is a loving Father, and therefore He won't ignore our sin, but instead He disciplines us with trials, and through other means He works in our lives for our good. Look at verse 10 there again. For our good is His holiness. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. And so God as a loving Father, works in His children, even through discipline, even through trials, to make us holy. And that brings our exploration of adoption to an end. We've seen nine good things, nine benefits that belong to those who have been adopted. First of all, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Secondly, we have an intimacy with God on par with the intimacy between Jesus and His Father. Third, we saw the whole Trinity is working. All three persons are working together in our salvation for this adoption. Fourth, because we are adopted, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, the family of God. Fifth, because we are sons, we should expect answer to our prayers, especially as we are conformed to the family image. Sixth, we have an inheritance really of all things because of this adoption. Seventh, that inheritance is guaranteed. Eighth, this leads us to have assurance of our salvation because we are adopted and we have the spirit who bears witness with our spirit. We have assurance of this salvation that God is working. And ninth, even if we go astray, the fatherly discipline of God will bring us back and correct us and and conform us even more to his ways. And so our last stop on the tour of adoption, then is number three, the expectations from adoption, the expectations from adoption and and what we want to see on this stop is the future of those who are adopted now we 've already seen this a little bit as we 've considered our inheritance. You see, we are already god 's children, but the fullness of this privilege is reserved for a future day and so turn with me then to first John chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 3, starting at verse 1, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is a a behold kind of moment. Behold the love of God that we should be called the children of God. And he says in verse two, we are God's children now. Even at this moment, we are God's children. And yet John recognizes that there's something future. It has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that we will be like him when we see him as he is. And so because we are God's children, we are going to see him, we are going to be conformed to his image. And if we have this hope, John says, we are going to purify ourselves as he is pure. If we have this hope, we're going to pursue Christ's likeness in our lives. But we are God's children now, and yet some future benefit awaits us. And and we see the same kind of idea in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22 and you could turn there with me Romans 8:22 we already looked at that section on adoption in round verse 15 but now towards the end of this uh, section verse 22 Paul says we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await or as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now this whole Romans 8 here is full of groaning and we're groaning because we are awaiting, in verse 21, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Or as it says in the ESV, we're we're waiting to, for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And there's this groaning as we're waiting for this this realization of our adoption. We are God's children now, but the fullness of what that means for us will only be revealed in eternity. What will it mean to be a child an adopted especially chosen child of God? What a glorious hope we have as we await for the the fullness of our adoption. We are God's sons now and yet at the same time we wait eagerly for this adoption and the fullness of what it means for us. Now Revelation chapter 21, I want to kind of close with this and I'm going to start reading at verse 1, Revelation 21. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, or the one who conquers will have this heritage. And literally here, it is the one who conquers, he will inherit these things. These things that I had just read starting in verse 1, he will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, friends, we've been studying the Beatitudes and we've been seeing the marks of a true disciple of Jesus Christ and the blessings that go along with those characteristics. And one of the greatest blessings, again, is this, that they shall be called the sons of God. The peacemakers will one day be declared sons of God, and they will inherit all these things. Now, there are only two eternal destinies, the lake of fire or the tree of life. And God has promised that all who come to Him will be accepted. God, in almost unbelievable condescension and grace, offers to take any who will come to Him as His sons and His daughters. And He will forgive your sin He will cleanse you. He will make you righteous in His sight. He will bring you into His family. He will bring you to Himself. And He will make you an heir of all that He has. And so come to Him now by trusting in this good news. Come to Him by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the only way to have this inheritance and to avoid the inheritance of eternal fire. And if you have come to him through Jesus Christ, then congratulations, because you are blessed. You are truly blessed. Beloved, we are God's children now, and one day we will receive the fullness of what he has promised, and we shall be called the sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we hardly know what to say Thank you seems so, so trite. And yet, what can we say? But thank you, Father, for this wonderful news, not only of salvation, but even adoption into your family. You are our Father. You are our Abba Father. You have accomplished this relationship between us. And we thank you for all the amazing blessings that you have shown us today adoption intimacy with you the holy spirit in our life the inheritance that is imperishable undefiled reserved in heaven for us that day when we will inherit all things the earth and you and be co-heirs with jesus christ we thank you for making us brothers and sisters and being a part together of your wonderful family We thank you for that inheritance that is coming, for the guarantee of it that you have given us by your Spirit. We thank you for the assurance of our salvation, that you answer our prayers, and that you even discipline us when we go astray, that you make us like your Son, Jesus Christ, and conform us into your image. And we pray, Father, that we would represent your name well on this earth. We ask you that we would be exemplary children of you, and we thank you really with all of our hearts for bringing us into your family. We pray that as we continue in our worship, you would bless us, that we might be a blessing to you, and that we would glorify you as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.